alligator in alignment. Once again, I'm gonna sing a song that all the women are gonna disagree with me on. Here's a song I wrote about a, a woman who married the perfect man. And don't you women say a damn thing, I can hear you thinking. There's no such thing as a perfect man. Listen to this song. If you listen to my lyrics, you're gonna agree with me. <laughs> this woman found the perfect man. But let me say one thing before I do this song. It wasn't me. baby coming walking like a queen I saw my baby coming let me tell you she's in love with me <laughs> she told me that she loved me say she always will say hey now alligator I want to be your girl took me by my hand, y'all, hey, and walked me down the hall. Say, hey, now, alligator, I'll be your one and all. Here's what happened. I got caught up in her magic, <laughs> caught up in her spell. What did I do? I went and got the preacher. Oh, shit. Now my heaven turned to hell. Let me tell you. I'm washing dishes. I wash the pots and pans. Stay home and watch the children while my wife goes out and dance. The perfect man. Now I wear an apron. I mow the lawn, do the groceries, change the diapers, wash the pots and pans. I used to be a lover, but that's over. Now I'm a mommy man. always will say hey now alligator I want to be your girl once again I got caught up in her magic caught up in her spell what did I do I went and got the preacher oh no then my heaven turned to hell here it is 20 years later I'm still washing dishes I wash the pots and pans. Stay home and watch the 19 children while my wife goes out and dance. At least I've been busy. Now I wear an apron. 
I mow the lawn, do the grocers, change the diapers, wash the pots and pans. I used to be a lover, but that's over. Now I'm a mommy man. I remember when I was a young man, they used to look at me and go, look at Alligator. He got all the girls. I used to be a lover, but that's over. Now I'm a mommy man. Alligator in alignment. Uh, I've got some a really special show to, today. Let me get in here for a minute. What are you tapping off of that? <laughs> okay. Um, in the very beginning of my podcasts, I did an introduction with Peter Turner. Uh, at Turner Studios. We're actually at Peter's Complex right now. But the second show I did was uh, one of the most popular of the, all of the things that I've done so far was with my friend Ted Sheckler. Um, <laughs> uh, on climate change. And when we did it, I told him, I said, well, we're going to have to come back and continue this. And it's been quite a while, but now I'm back. So I'd like to bring on uh, Ted Schechter and also Nate Kanye. You got it. Got it. Uh, can you guys come on over and sit out here? Nate did a, uh, another show that we did that was very, very, very popular also. And he wanted to be a, a part of this. We were going to have a huge party and all of this stuff, but... Uh, Peter Peter Turner uh, sort of under the weather needs needs to rest at this point, so so here we are. Um, Ted, this climate thing, this climate change, this climate thing, is not getting better. No, it's getting worse. It's getting worse. It's it's a uh, it's amazing that a a subject of this importance. I mean, we're talking about. The future generations here, you know, you know, uh, uh, it's being ignored, and I think I'm 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 going to say this, and I could be wrong, but this is this is what I see. I think you can boil it all back down to that one thing that seems to ruin humanity: the love of money. The love of money. Well, I. I think we have lots of evidence that uh, fossil fuel industries uh, are at the at the core of this, and they have a lot of power and a lot of money, and they're not about to give up that power. Uh, and so, what we're seeing happen now is a tremendous amount of organization going on in civil society to try to address various aspects of this climate crisis. Uh, but it's getting pushed back continuously by the fossil fuel industries. Uh, who see, you know, the history unfolding over the next number of 50 years, 70 years, 80 years, that they intend to continue to mine fossil fuels. And if we stop burning them uh, to create energy, uh, they're moving into using the fossil fuels to create plastics. I mean, that's the get-out-of-jail-free card. Uh, so there's a lot of, uh, of financial incentive to keep business as usual, uh, and so I think I think you're right. And yet, 
it's gratifying to see uh, a lot of civil society, both in the United States, but also internationally, uh, trying to confront this, this tremendous uh, power of, of, of the industries that are at the root cause of the climate crisis. Any words from you, my friend? So I wouldn't say it's entirely about money because, you know, I thinking about this subject, I think it's, it's a complex topic. I think if you really internalize where the climate is today, um, for a lot of people that don't follow it very closely, it's really frightening and sad. And there was kind of a grieving process. And I, I personally had a grieving process with it, actually moving to California uh, two and a half years ago. And just, you know, in the heat of these terrible forest fires, I moved August of 2020, pandemic, world shut down, literally orange sky over San Francisco. Many people have seen those pictures. Oh, and yes, I saw it. I just remember, like, driving around Marin and, like, holy shit, this is the most beautiful nature I've ever seen. And, like, it's 90 degrees right now. And, like, there's no fucking way a redwood tree, like, grew up in this stuff. And just noticing the the disconnect between the climate that I was experiencing and just looking at the nature and like this came up in a different era. And that was really, really hard for me to process. Um, and I, I'm someone who's, you know, followed, uh, followed the climate for a long time. I've, you know, been very uh, plugged into the urgency of changing the way that our society operates. And it still was just so emotionally hard for me to confront just where we are. And I think for a lot of people, you know, who don't go their daily lives thinking about the climate, there's this process of like, wow, the way we, we've been living is not sustainable. The way that I've been thinking and operating doesn't work. And wow, we've done a lot of damage. And I, you know, I think there's an emotional component of that too. And I think the money is totally playing off that for sure. I agree with that. But I, I think there, there's other factors too, to unwind. I think you pointed out the the uh, anxiety that so many younger people are feeling. Ooh, it's goodness. it's yeah. uh, it's 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 really gotten down to quite young folks. You know, uh, student age uh, uh, people who are who are really feeling it in a profound way. I mean, to the point that it's leading to clinical depression uh, yeah, yeah, and yes. and and a, a sense of of uh, of uh, despair, hopelessness. That, yeah, that 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 is in some ways serving to catalyze more activity because mm -hmm. now younger people are getting organized and, uh, uh, and, and speaking out about this. And that's always a good thing. Yeah, it is. The, young, the younger generation, the ones who are going to inherit whatever we leave them. Because when you guys grew up, there wasn't, like, I'm 30, you know, Donnie's 25, 26, something in that range. And for us, this is just the world that we're in, yeah. you know, and you guys are, uh, you know, hopefully going to be around for a long time. But like when you were growing up, you know, there wasn't this, this just like moment and this realization that like, wow, like the world's in some serious trouble, right? Like yeah. you just went about your daily lives. It was a sunny day. It was beautiful. And this is just so present for people of our generation. And it, you know, I don't know, like it's, it's in some ways like terrifying, but in other ways you, you kind of you make peace with it because that's what it is and you can't ignore it and you have to do things about it. But I, I just think like there's much more of a uh, realization that this is the world that we're living in for people like me and like Donnie. Well, that's also leading to uh, some really innovative uh, uh, experiments in how to build resilience um, in, in, so that, so that uh, 
you know, people are going to be more prepared for the climate change that's already happening in some places more than others, um, depending on what sort of experiments they're able to carry out. But one of the things you and I talked about last time, Alligator, was, was the fact that not all communities are uh, equally Impact. impacted yes. by the climate yes. change. And, and that, that happens for a variety of reasons. It makes it very difficult for some communities to respond compared to others. Yeah, that, that uh, inequality of how climate change affects people opens up another whole can of worms. Uh, that's pretty ugly, too. <laughs> yeah. um, unfortunately, it seems like seems like that most of the most polluted areas seem to be where the poor happen to live. That's that's actually quite true. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean that that is that is exactly right. You have more air pollution and more hazardous waste sites contaminated with a whole variety of things in areas where disadvantaged communities tend to be located. That's true across the country and it's true globally as well uh, in many countries. So you have increased exposures in communities uh, that are located in these places and then an increased risk of some of the impacts of climate change. So increased exposure to the ravages of intensifying storms or wildfires, as you mentioned, uh, and decreased ability to respond to it when it happens, as well as increased vulnerability because of underlying health status. So you sort of, in a sense, have a tr sort of a triple whammy you have increased exposures, decreased ability to respond, and increased vulnerability. And that, that's sort of a, a recipe for, in, for real trouble in many communities. Well, that's, you know, almost, uh, the, when I hear you say that, a lot of that almost feels like it has a U.S. lens to it. I know it doesn't, but like the, the really, in the U.S., that's definitely true for sure. Um, and even if you like looked at like rates of houses with air conditioning in Houston and like did, yeah. you know, a, a socioeconomic overlay of that, it would be unsurprising and, you know, kind of sad, uh, very sad. But, you know, the, the big communities that are going to be the most affected by this are the communities in the global south, which have, you know, whether it's it's Africa or it's, you know, South America or, you know, because the the heat is going to get so extremely unbearable in those places, you know, 120 degree plus heat waves extended for, you know, potentially weeks on end. And it's, it's already starting to happen. And the resources of those countries to combat that is, you know, are very, very low. So there, it, when you apply the global lens to it, you know, and there's, I don't know what the statistic is, but you know, when I was, Coming up, it was always two billion, three billion people live on less than two dollars a day, and those two or three billion people tend to live in the global south, and they're going to be extremely impacted by this, even more so than Americans. Yeah, it's even it's even a bigger disparity. I agree with that. Yeah, and and, and if you live in in a situation where you're living on a few dollars a day, and 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 then drought hits or or some other climate related event you're less able to respond to it. I mean, what are you going to do? You, you, become, uh, you become a climate refugee in some sense, and uh, uh, all kinds of in insecurities follow from that. Yeah, and your government can't just print $3 trillion because, exactly. you know, exactly. people had to stay home for a little bit. Yeah, exactly. 
And these changes, uh, these changes are, are here. They're happening right now. That that we were warned about 50 years ago, you know. Uh, and we and, and being here in Bolinas, we're right down the road from from a perfect example of climate change, Stinson Beach. <laughs> Stinson Beach. They're going to have to move. They've already. Uh, had plans for the last couple of years that they're already moving these plans ahead. They're going to have to move all of those buildings off the beach up to the side of the mountain because they say in 20 years it's all going to be underwater. Well, some of the storms that we had this this uh, winter just passed uh, flooded uh, a number of homes and businesses in Stinson Beach. And that, and that didn't used to be the way, way yeah. it was. That just was not the way it was. So that's... You know, it's it's happening right now when you've got a, a community like this that know that it is uh, imperative that they move, start moving now to move their population closer back up to the side of the mountain because uh, if they wait, it's going to be too late. These, you know, the, uh, climate change is, is, is here and the good, only optimistic thing we can think about is that there's still a chance to, a small window, but there's still a window to turn this thing around. Well, we've got to, we've got to stop burning fossil fuels. Um, uh, as, I mean, that has, that has to be a primary goal. And that's and a tough one. That's a tough one. And, and we, have to, we have to transform our agricultural systems that are pouring greenhouse gases into the atmosphere through a variety of, of, of ways. For example, the cattle raising that is uh, done on an industrial scale is producing a tremendous amount of methane. I mean, if you add up all of the contributions of agriculture, whether it's producing the fertilizer or the land use changes and so forth, I mean, we're talking about a huge percentage of global greenhouse gases. So we have to do those things. Uh, but we've already baked a lot of climate change into the atmosphere right now. I mean, the, the greenhouse gases that have already been emitted that are in the atmosphere are going to continue the warming trends. So we're going to have to figure out how to deal with that while we try st to try stop to... emitting more greenhouse gases. Meanwhile, the, the, the vulnerable communities will continue to feel the impacts. Some of the people are being displaced around the world certain uh, islands here, here yeah. or there. You know, I mean, just being 100% uh, displaced. This is, this is a serious, probably the most serious thing going on. You know? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, there's some serious, things, there's some serious things going on, but it's, well, it's global. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> By definition, yes, it's I mean, inescapable and it has very wide ranging impacts. Yeah, some people talk about this as being the sort of the a, a prominent component of the sort of poly crisis. To get to your point, there's a lot of things going on. <laughs> I mean, we've we're, we're coming out the end of one epidemic, literally worldwide epidemic, and others are on the horizon. On the horizon, and maybe not too far away. Yeah. Uh, and then there's all the political strife. There's the economic disparities. There's the climate crisis. Uh, I mean, there, there are a whole variety of things that are sort of at play here. And you're right, the climate is an important component of that, uh, 
uh, and gives us a challenge to figure out how, how do you respond in the context in which you live. So the, the response in Northern California is going to have to be different from the response in the Midwest or in the South or, or in Brazil or other places in the world, depending on the local context. What would some of those responses be? Could you outline them a little bit more specifically, geographically, regionally? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, for example... Well, you're not buying a Tesla in <laughs> a lot of places. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, there are, there are opportunities for individuals, but there are also, I think, you know, the transformation of agriculture, as I mentioned, it's going to look very different in, North, in California than, say, Iowa. In Iowa, it's almost wall-to-wall -wall corn and soybeans. And about 40% of that corn is being used to create ethanol, which is then being blended with gasoline and burned to power transportation, creating greenhouse gases. So if you think about how you might transform Iowa agriculture, you begin to think about how do we get away from raising corn to burn in cars? How do we get away from growing soybeans to feed chickens and and, and beef cattle in industrial feedlots while using that fertile, rich soil to grow a much diverse set of crops that actually feel, feeds people and sequesters carbon in the soil. So that's, that's, a, that's sort of a, a design problem that is, is suitable, suitable for Iowa, but it, it isn't relevant to Northern California. So I just think we have to think about what are the challenges in places and then what are the opportunities. Nate, um, what would you say are some of the economic ramifications of making some of these changes that would affect such large industries such as agriculture or um, the petroleum industry in America? Could you speak on that? I know <laughs> well, that's a really loaded question. Loaded question, and I, I left my PhD for economics at home. What's up, alligator? <laughs> for anyone who's wondering who this ghost voice is here. Producer Donnie. No this more is, this, is, this is my, my co-producer, my son Donnie. He's, he's, he's here with us, but he's sitting this out. And uh, I continue doing what you're doing, though, okay? <laughs> well, for example, I know um, with petroleum specifically, uh, sort of the output of wanting to move this movement in America towards electronic cars, or electric vehicles, has been like an increase in investing in uh, plastics and other petroleum-based products. Would you say that's correct? Well, the plastics are being used for a lot of purposes. Right. Yeah, there's no question that they're being used for a lot of purposes so, and, and, and coming from petroleum. Right now, I mean, do you, is do you, there, are they not intertwined? Is that not like a response at all? No, they they are intertwined, but there are ways to re reconfigure the material economy in ways that has less of a climate impact. Yeah. But that re means redesigning the plastics. It means redesigning the sources. They don't have to be made from uh, natural gas or fossil mm -hmm. fuels. Uh, but right now, that's the game plan for the industry. Gotcha. I mean, I think like there's there is a short-term cost and disruption. I mean, there, there are a lot of ways in which, even over a relatively short-term time horizon, being more, you know, environmentally conscious is profitable. I mean, like, if you look at 
the cheapest forms of new energy to construct, and it, it depends on where it is, but they're typically renewables in, in North America anyway. Um, and they're, they're question, you know, things you need to figure out around grid resiliency and energy storage and that type of thing. But just if you start, if you're building a power plant today in America, you're not building a coal power plant, not because of regulation or, you know, fear from public retribution, just because it's not economical. So, you know, I think one of the, one of the interesting things to think about that we don't, is sometimes lost on us is the fact that like, we're talking about efficient usage of, of resources in most of these cases. And, you know, that should be reflected in positive, you know, kind of real economic outcomes. Now, I think part of the issue is that the way that our system right now thinks about what is economically profitable is not very holistic and it tends to be very short term. And so I think, you know, in, the, in that context, there are, you know, upfront uh, costs in, in some cases to make investments that are required to transition systems. And then I think like we also have to be okay as consumers of, you know, uh, with more more disruption. It's not existential disruption. It's not even disruption that really materially impacts impacts our quality of life. In fact, it could improve our quality of life if it gives us greater appreciation for the, you know, extreme uh, comforts and and uh, you know luxuries. Honestly, that we have in this country. But you know, is it does it make a whole lot of sense to be able to order a package and have it show up in two hours? Like, not really. Um, you know, it, are we going to have to have, you know, power shutdowns in California over some period of time while we, you know, make fundamental changes to our grid for sure, but that's not existential. And, you know, you read these, uh, every time there's a power shutoff in California, you, you know, you Wall Street Journal throws out an immediate thing, just bashing, you know, green energy and saying, well, this is never going to work. And, you know, the reality is that like it is working, <laughs> it's actually working quite well. And, you know, there are, we're starting from a baseline of zero and there's this kind of binary framing of it of like, wow, like one thing was 5% worse and oh my God, you know, we can never make this transition. And I think we need to reframe our minds a little bit um, as consumers to say, wow, like 5% worse for like a planet that works over the long term, like that's a hell of a deal. I'll take that any day. That's good. What do you say, Tate? Well, uh, I, I agree that the... The renewable energy is becoming increasingly uh, more affordable. I mean, it's it's compared to 25 years ago, it's it's so much cheaper now uh, that that uh, you know it's it's cheaper than coal, burning coal for energy. So now, one of our jobs is to retire these old uh, coal-fired power plants that are spewing out uh, a lot of greenhouse gases. Uh, the problem there is that there's a lot of political resistance from the coal-producing states. And so then we get into the whole issue of how money has infiltrated politics. Um, and the fossil fuel industry, including the coal industry, spends a lot of money uh, to support candidates who will go to bat for them in, in, in the legislature. So, and, and this is happening in the states as well as federally. Uh, but... It, it nevertheless is the, 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 a fact that renewables have become cheaper. And uh, I, so I think the writing is on the wall. That what we need to do is figure out this just transition. So coal miners and coal mining families should, should not bear the brunt of this transition. We have to figure out how to make this transition. But, uh, and there are ways to do that. But, but I, I, that's just one example of how 
uh, how renewables are, are beginning to push the market in a different direction. I mean, I also think like there's, you know, going to be a ton of uh, economic disruption from, I hate just throwing the term AI out there as a buzzword, but like you look at what some of these programs can do, and I mean, they're going to eliminate a lot of white collar jobs in very short order, um, just because the volume of work that are done by those jobs that can now be done by a robot is, I don't know, 70, 80% in many cases. And so you take, you know, 70, 80% out of the equation and you don't need nearly as many people. So like, we're going to go through a, a lot of economic disruption um, in the coming years for a variety of different factors. And so I think, you know, we do need to think holistically about the, the denominator um, of, uh, of wealth is not the issue. I mean, there, there's America has $20 trillion or something like that of wealth. It's a third of the glo global GDP. Um, so the, the, the amount of resources that are out there, the size of the pie is not the issue. But we don't have um, the social infrastructure set up to allocate that in a way that maximizes or even just kind of minimally achieves public good at this point. That's a good point. Which, which gets back to the issue of how that public good is thought about and, and how these resources are allocated. Uh, because as, as Nate's pointing out, we have, we have lots of resources, uh, but the way they're allocated creates so many injustices and so much inequality right now uh, that we have to ask ourselves whether we have the political will to address it. That's, that's the million dollar question right there. Do we have the political will to do what, what has to be done? It's not, not like uh, uh, should be done, which absolutely has to be done. I mean, one of the, one of the uh, areas of this country that's gotten a lot of attention that I've been watching carefully is what's called Cancer Alley. In, in Louisiana. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and um, years ago, uh, yeah. when I first started doing public environmental health work, uh, I was asked to take a look at that, that claim that this was, uh, there was an area of Louisiana, Southeast Louisiana that had increased ris risks of cancer and incidents of cancer because people in the Louisiana Medical Society were denying that it even existed. And so uh, when I looked at the data at that time, it was apparent to me that one of the problems was that the way the cancer data were collected made it really hard to identify the specific area that lies along the Mississippi River, River there where cancerality was reported to exist. Uh, and so fast forward uh, about 20 years uh, and Louisiana has begun to collect their cancer incidence data in a different way. It's a more fine-grained way, so they could really begin to look specifically all along that Mississippi River corridor where so many of these industries are located, fossil fuel industries, industries that are making plastics and chemicals out of fossil fuels, releasing air pollutants yeah. into the air on these communities, uh, contaminating the water and the land. Uh, so that was, the, that was the, the setting for this. And now with the new cancer data, studies have shown that yes, indeed, there is a cancer alley. People who live along that corridor 
do have a higher uh, incidence of, of various kinds of cancer, and it's disproportionately felt in people who are economically disadvantaged and people of color. Those are the ones at the highest risk. So this is an example of, of the material economy, which begins with sort of the fossil fuel industry, and then everything that flows from that, creating industries that are impacting certain group of people more than others. So this is the inequality thing that I, I'm saying that we have to ask ourselves whether we have the political will to address it. Yeah. I have a question about um, a section of an industry that you've mentioned a few times today, but may, I'd like you to go into a little bit more detail. Um, the raising of red meats specifically. I know compared to other calories that you can consume that has a disproportionate amount of land that you need and resources to allocate like per pound. Um, is that something that is that can remain with a movement towards a greener world or is that something that needs to be phased out or what are your, do you have any opinions on that? Well, yeah, I thought a lot about this. Uh, I think that there are ways of raising red meat uh, in what are called regenerative systems where the cattle uh, and other red meat organisms are, are integrated into a more uh, sort of integrated cropping system. Um, and, uh, but you can't, you can't raise them in the industrial model that we're using right now uh, and, and accomplish the same thing. So if you go into the Central Valley of California right now, where up until this year, there's been a 10 year shortage of water, um, and you find these enormous cattle feedlots in this uh, in this uh, arid areas. I mean, tens of thousands of cattle being fed with uh, corn that's being imported from Iowa. Uh, most of which is not. It's not. Most of it's coming in from out of state. Alfalfa that's being grown in um, areas of California and out of state, which is a very water thirsty crop uh, in these feedlots, creating enormous amounts of greenhouse gases, which are creating air pollution, water pollution, nitrogen runoff, and so on, contaminating the water supplies of the, of the Central Valley of California, the groundwater, so that there are many farming communities that cannot get clean water from the ground anymore because it's contaminated with nitrogen from these feedlots. So it's, it's a redesign of the of the of the uh, agricultural system, and at the heart of it is the, is this red meat thing. Now, having said that, in the United States, I mean, I was astounded at this, uh, but people in the United States, on average, eat three to four times more red meat uh, annually than they need for health health purposes. While there are people around the world in other areas of the world that would benefit from eating some nutritious red meat. So it's another one of these inequity things that uh, I, I don't want to just bash meat except to say that there are ways of producing meat, dietary meat, that can address the, cli the climate problem and other environmental problems while thinking about the nutritional value of it for, for uh, other people. Yeah, the red meat issue is an interesting one because it, it's, it's extremely effective right now as a political wedge to say that, you know, there are many folks that eat a lot of red meat and it can be very effective to come to them and say, you know, hey, these people that want to make an impact on 
preserving a hospitable and beautiful planet beyond the next 50 or 100 years are telling you that you have to fundamentally alter your way of life. And, you know, they're the same people that live in these coastal cities and they talk down to you and they have all these fancy degrees and they're trying to take your hamburger. Um, and I think, you know, I don't necessarily know how to overcome that dialogue that's getting stuck because I think like the reality is like, no, look, like, you know, we're a free country. You're a free person. You can continue to, you know, consume all the meat that you want. Um, having said that, like, it is just objectively true that the way that we are going about this is going to, you know, destroy our planet. Like, that's just a fact, you know, and like, you can, you can still continue to make that choice if you want. That's your free human being. But I do think it's, it's interesting because the red meat one and there are other ones, you know, the banning of gas stoves and these other things can become like really effective wedge issues. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not quite sure how to get around that because I think it really hampers our ability to have a productive discourse on this as a society, which is, you know, what we need ultimately to, to move forward on it. Yeah, I agree uh, that it's it certainly is a wedge issue. I do think that one way to think about the meat issue is to think about the true cost of food. Uh, um, if we were to actually charge for red meat at the supermarket, all of the costs that are embedded, it would change people's calculus fairly quickly because the the climate impacts. Uh, the health impacts that the are, health impacts are extremely substantial too. That's the other irony of this: is it right, leads to right. a and, lot of chronic issues and, and that who's, are very costly. And who's taxpayers? Who's pay, taxpayers and individuals and and, 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 individuals and families yeah. are are paying those costs. So those are those are externalized from the the cost of food at the supermarket. If they were brought into the cost of food, we would we would see different pe uh, price structures. That's a good point. You know, the um, the cows, cows themselves, the, the, the animals we use for food, they are actually beneficial to the earth if they are raised in the right way. The problem is those industrialized uh, uh, holding pens where they hold them at, they got thousands of cattle. And, you know, um, because the buffalo kept the grasslands healthy because they came through and they tore up the earth you know and the earth needs that the cows do the same thing if they're in an open pasture and and whatever um, they're beneficial to to the earth it's those doggone uh big industrial whatever you call them that that you know those big feet. well and it's pretty i don't know if any of you guys have ever flown over the central valley at low altitude Especially now it's a little bit greener, but when there was a drought, you know, if you're in a small plane like a Cessna, you know, or something like that, um, it, it is stark because you see, you do see some green patches where there's agriculture, but there's, you know, increasingly in the past couple of years, there's been a lot less of that. And we've been tearing up really water intensive crops like almonds and, and that sort of thing. It's basically like a desert of like essentially arid land and then black and these feedlots are yes, completely yes, black they're yes, like an yes. acre black or maybe i don't know 10 acres it's they're not that large and there's a thousand it's cows scary yeah. it's scary you know it's a blot on the land mm -hmm. i mean i mean when you look at it you see uh, i hate to use the word this is evil 
You can, and you can smell it too. In yeah. an air, if you're at 2,000 feet in an airplane, like oh, you will smell oh it. It's, it's pretty wild. Yeah. So well, on the other hand, here in this area of Northern California, here at least we have a number of ranchers that are really uh, pretty committed to the rotational grazing that you were yes, talking yes, about, Alligator. Yes, yes. Where uh, the the cattle are kept on it land for a period of time and then they and move them someplace move, else. move yeah, to yeah. another pasture uh and let and let the uh let the the grasses regenerate meanwhile their 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 activity on the land is helping to get the manure uh, down into the soil yes, so yes. There, there is carbon sequestration yeah. going on with that kind of grazing uh that that is not happening in feedlots well i think it is interesting though that this crisis that we face prompts these types of conversations because these probably aren't the type of conversations you guys were having when you were 26 and 30, oh, like no. Donnie and me, you know? <laughs> no, no. So like, but there, there's so much potential for us to really live in a society, a societal framework that is far more evolved, equitable, and also just higher quality for each individual um, where, where people are honestly genuinely happier. I mean, I, I just keep coming back to the fact that like the amount of wealth, at least in in America that we have um, it is so far beyond what is required to build really any society that we would want to build. And so I do think we have a unique moment in time. It's, it's almost like you could, uh, I wish I had a whiteboard as someone that uses whiteboards a lot, but you've got kind of a trend of escalating climactic and, you know, other poly crises. And then you've got like a, a another wave that's kind of cresting around the awareness of those and the awareness of the ways in which we are, not operating in a way that is sustainable or equitable. And at a certain point, I think that other wave does, that wave does crest to enough momentum that it really does become the political zeitgeist. And the, the question is really just, what is kind of the intersection of those two things look like? Um, and, you know, can we pull forward the crest of that wave of kind of consciousness, for lack of a better word, to the point that we avoid the worst outcomes of these crises? And it, it's unclear at this point. I mean, that's a... Yeah. That's a coin flip at best. <laughs> yeah, say. it is unclear, but I, I like the way you're thinking about it in terms of putting pressure on the system uh, in, in the ways that make the most sense for your context and your capacities in ways that try to nudge the system into a way that is more sustainable. I mean, this is a fucking cool book. Like, yeah. this book has some great ideas in it, you know, and we, we're at a point where there's engagement on those topics. Yeah. Yeah. Not as much as there ultimately needs to be, but I think there's definitely momentum. You know, I, I just made a decision here. <laughs> uh, the, uh, we're going to close this one out. Okay, we're going to come back. Take a break. Okay. okay? Mm -hmm. I'm going to come back and continue this conversation. But we, we're, we're talking about a situation that I remember when I was young. I don't know why I was like this. I was always against technology. I remember when they first brought tractors into the area I was growing up in, and I hated them. I said, no. Uh, you know, these things, look at this. They spearing all the smoke out of this, this, this thing, and, and they leaking oil and, and stuff. I said, look, when we're plowing horses and mules, they open up the earth. If they want to they wanna take a dump, they take a shit. <laughs> it's fertilizing the earth, you know, you know what I mean? So, so I was always against that. And, Recently, I saw a, uh, listening to the young people's music, whatever they call it, the hip-hop 
a hop hip or whatever the hell they call it. <laughs> but I saw this 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 young cowboy, uh, young guy in a cowboy outfit, and uh, the Old Town Road, I think the song is called. Uh, you Lord know, Lord yeah. Um, <laughs> and I, and I said, oh, a young cowboy, okay. And he had this chorus to his song that I really liked. Then he started talking about these lyrics, and I realized, wait a minute, he's not, he, he knows nothing about this. So I sort of rewrote the thing myself. I'm going to do it to close this show out. Because um, I talk about the muse and, and, and all, all of that kind of stuff. But we're going to close this one out. This has been really fun. We're going to take a little break. We're going to come back and continue. Okay? Episode two. So 